It's not a problem for me. My iPhone's always connected, except for when it's not. <laughs> when I pull out of my bat cave and launch through the waterfall, I lose connectivity there. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 44 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Ben Sherman. Hello from Houston. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Peter Cannonan. Hi, from Cincinnati, Ohio. Since you haven't been on the show before, Peter, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Peter Cannonan, and I have been a developer for about eight years. I'm actually, we call it a project guide. I guess that's the less offensive version of a project manager these days at our company. I work at a small consulting company called Gaslight, and we have made our name mostly on Ruby on Rails work, although we've done iOS apps, and we've done quite a bit of rich client JavaScript development the last few years. We tend to work with medium-sized companies, helping them build applications that build their business. And I've been doing iOS for about four years, maybe five now, I guess. Started in 2009-ish, so good time doing that. and. I've been a little less involved in the last year with actual development time, but I've been trying to keep up with iOS. And the last big application I did was really relevant for the topic of today, which is offline authentication. So, Awesome. So what do you mean by offline authentication? I have like three different guesses, and I want to see which one's right. Okay, so the requirement that we dealt with was, it's actually a project full of cliches because we were actually building a literal bug tracker for literal usage in the field. And in this environment where we were collecting a lot of data, this is for an agricultural application. In the environment where we're collecting a lot of data, cell service is not an assumption that you can make out in the field, literally in the middle of nowhere, or at least South Dakota or something like that. And the need to record a lot of data offline and possibly allow multiple users to use the application, we essentially needed a way to keep track of user credentials when you're disconnected from the network and then sync back up later with you know the server-side application that we were interfacing with, which is the Rails app that we wrote as well. So for us, offline authentication meant that a user entered their username and password and they were able to use the application with their previously stored data that they pulled down from the server, and they would be able to pass the device between users. Meanwhile, they were never connected to the network doing all of these things. That sounds pretty handy. So if they're entirely offline and they've never downloaded data, is there, can they still use it, or do they have to have at least logged in once? Yeah, they're going to have to have logged in at least once to pull down their data because the application didn't really ship with any you know, user-specific data. I suppose there could be some functionality that we could expose without an account, but for the client, that wasn't really a need because they have an established base of customers. You know, this isn't an app that you'd, like, download from the App Store and just start playing with. It was, you wouldn't have downloaded unless you had a long-term relationship with the provider, so. Okay, so there's no chance of you, like, sort of entering a username and password and then we just hope it's okay for now and then later on we'll check it again on connectivity? Right, no, so they, I mean, you just kind of assume that their their account is still valid? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the, the big questions, right, is how long should they be able to be offline before we require them to revalidate? Because what if their permissions change or they're no longer a valid user? Or those are the kinds of questions that make solving this problem difficult. So, so what do you do? Do you store their username and password when they log in in some kind of encrypted file? That's usually what we did is initially, assuming we have a network connection, we would first attempt to retrieve their stored credentials 
And we use the keychain for this in iOS, which is usually the best way to go about doing something like this. And this is another decision point. Do we attempt to re-authenticate and possibly pull updates for their account, user-specific data, or do we just assume what they have cached on the device is good enough for now and there's no need to, you know, revalidate. Obviously, if you don't have a network connection, you can't try to revalidate uh, their credentials and pull down any data. But the decision to do that is is kind of a tough one. And in some ways, you want the user to be able to, you know, override the default and maybe pull down data as they desire because maybe they know that they're going to get an update, even though the system might not be aware of that. There's you know, various strategies you can use in your server, in your application on the server to you know, deal with invalidated data, use like a last modified since um, value that you can provide. You can set various headers to show that your cache is invalid and stuff like that. So the happy path would usually be, okay, the user logs in, they pull down data, and let's assume they're going to be offline for a week. No problem. They can just use that data. Everything is stored locally in core data as they you know, create additional reports, which is what the user is doing here. And then when we find that we have an internet connection, we just go back and send up any data they created and then pull for any updates that they may need. So the edge cases there are what makes this topic tricky, in my opinion, because aside from the, the happy path is not that hard. So walk us through kind of the application. So you've logged in, you've downloaded your data, you're all good. Okay. Now you're in a cornfield yep. somewhere in the middle of South Dakota. Well, how does the app work? You have, let's say you have data about a field, which is geographic data, coordinates essentially. And you might have some metadata about what crop type is there and maybe historical data about past observations. Okay, because we're this, this is like a a scouting app, essentially, for agricultural usage. And you go and create a report, you walk the perimeter of the field, the device is recording your coordinates, which, since we're using a an iPad in this case that has GPS hardware, you don't need to be connected to the network in order to record any of this information. And then, you know, we're just, as the user takes pictures or makes notes about things, we're just creating a model that's saved in core data of all their observations relative to that field. And then when they go back to the server they or they get back on a network connection, they can choose to submit the report that they've created. And that's essentially the use case for the app. It's not extremely complicated in a lot of ways, but um, it gets tricky when you deal with data that's being pulled from the server that has several different layers of, of nesting. So you have, you might have like a regional level of data, and then you have a, a grower specific level of data, and then you have fields underneath that grower. So you have this network essentially of this data that needs to be all pulled down together because the relationship between these entities is really important. And the data size in, in these cases wasn't, wasn't huge, but once you throw a couple thousand objects in core data and start mapping them, it can be a little more interesting there. And Choosing how to update that data is kind of hard. You can attempt to do deltas, but if an object at a the lowest level is dependent on you know a another object there, like in a kind of like a has many relationship or something, and that object in the middle goes away, then you have to blow away essentially all of your local data. And there's different you know merge strategies you can employ here, but we chose usually to go with a if you want to do an update, we're just going to blow everything you have away and start from scratch. So, Okay, sounds like more of what you're discussing is not necessarily authentication, making sure that the right user is using it, but what to do after the user comes online. So you get all this data, walking around the cornfield, now you're online. Was it more of a sync problem? Am I, am I getting yeah, that it, right? is, it is kind of a, 
offline data sync strategy. And there are some really cool enhancements added to iOS in the last year or two that are supposed to help with this. Unfortunately, the time when I spent most time developing the app, it was still like really early for things like incremental store to be used. Yeah, so like you mentioned, the offline data to me was one of the harder issues. The authentication itself, you know, really was just we're going to store the token and then we're just going to use that token next time we get on the network and are able to submit information. So maybe the other panelists would have some, you know, more unusual use cases for offline authentication and any issues they encountered. But I didn't have that many just with the authentication part. I did complicate my life a lot when I made a mistake in my server-side authentication logic, and I gave an invalid token to a number of users. And that actually turned out to be really tricky to get rid of the bad token on their device. And actually, this concept of, there's almost like this concept of versioning that I've encountered when I was trying to implement this offline, you know, authentication logic. And that might be a more interesting topic to talk about as well. So any other experiences on how you've solved this problem for, you know, offline usage of an application for users account? I have a similar anecdote. Yeah. And to go with it, sort of a hard lesson learned. (laughs) One of the projects I worked on a few years ago, it would store a lot of data, GPS data. And then at the end of a trip, you would submit the data to the server. And uh, we would do some number crunching on the server to basically analyze the trip. And it wasn't so bad for like my drive from home to work. And then I would like work on that data and it would all work. And the idea was just like simple, like Rails controller action. You would submit an array of waypoints and a name for the trip. And the server would, you know, save it into the database and compute the score and then return back the score to you and other things that we've determined based on the analysis of the trip. And so that worked fine. But it turns out that truck drivers uh, started to use this app and they would drive from like Florida to California, all tracking the data, and it would all go in one big file on disk. And so then when we went to go send it, that post would end up taking longer than, I think at the time Heroku had a 30 second timeout for uh, processing a web request. And we didn't do any of the stuff in the background at that time, which was, you know, lesson learned number one. And because of that, some of them would actually get stuck in the processing phase after they had been saved in the database, but before we returned the result to the client. So the client, you know, being smart and wanting to handle low network conditions would just say, oh, oh we got an error. I'm going to submit that one again next time. And so we got just loads and loads of duplicate trips. And to make matters worse, you know, the timestamps were based on when you submitted. And so it was not trivial for me to uh, to detect the fact that they were duplicate trips, uh, especially since it would append onto the same file. So there was you know, a number of problems there, but one of the biggest ones, I think, is to you know, generate IDs on the client side so that I could detect whether or not you're trying to submit the same trip twice. When you said that it would take more than 30 seconds, I thought you were going to say it would take longer than it took them to drive that distance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of a similar scenario where they're collecting a lot of data. We didn't want to hammer their network the entire trip. Uh, and so we were just collecting it into the end, and then we zip up that file and and upload it. But then Rails has to do something with it. And you know what we should have done is you know accept the file and say okay we're processing it and give them back like a token that they can go back and look at the trip at the status of that trip. And then we could just process it in our own time and update the record when we're done. And they could just pull for the the status. So I'm kind of curious if you have like multiple access levels. Do you tend to manage all of that in your iOS app or do you do some kind of management on the back end, you know, the data service or whatever? 
because it seems like you would need it in the case of, you know, doing offline authentication, especially, or even just making the application responsive enough, you know, given that the data is already there on the application. Does that change any of the parameters of your offline authentication? I suppose it could. I didn't have many very levels of user permissions. Everything was essentially controlled via the, the data that they had access to. So that was definitely one challenge. Let's say that the user has access to a certain set of data. They pull that data down on their device. They are offline. Meanwhile, they lose access to that data server side, and they no longer have that account permission, and there's a much more robust permissioning system in on the server side app, in this case a Rails app. And then later the user creates data based on this invalid data they don't have access to anymore. Let's say it's a an account that they no longer are working on. And then they submit a report for that account. Well, the server is going to have to check to make sure that they no longer, you know, make sure they have access to that. And oftentimes that kind of permissioning wouldn't be built into, you know, your Rails controller that you would use if you're just serving up a Rails view because the assumption is, you know, I'm always going to have access to data because I'm running, you know, just browser request response cycles here and it's not like I'm going to lose access to the stuff on that 30 second timeline like I would, you know, if I'm offline for two weeks. So most of my user permissioning was really at, at a data level that wasn't directly controlled. I think it's really important to make sure that, you know, it absolutely has to be on the server, right? It's like if somebody were to not use your client and use their own, you know, a homegrown one to hack your service, you know, you still have to have that level of data security on the on the server. But like you said, you can't just check at any point in time, do I have access to X? So I think it also, in this case, needs to be on the client uh, so that you can, if there were such a requirement to say, okay, you can't edit this field. And let's say somehow due to a bug in the software or a malicious user who can, you know, jailbreak their device and go edit stuff in the application itself, once they go to submit that data, it should be able to validate that, yes, the data that you submitted is still valid. Like nothing was tampered with. Either that or we just reject the things that we're not allowing uh, the user to write. How do you keep those permissions in sync? It's a much easier question to ask, I think. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, in a lot of cases, you can just punt in web apps and say the server will catch it. Like, yeah. uh, like uh, for instance, like username uniqueness validator. Like almost every website will uh, have a form, you type in your username, and then it's so easy to write an Ajax request that just checks the validity of that or uniqueness of that um, of that username. But then you also have to check again when you submit, right? So that one's like a quick win. And so it doesn't matter so much to keep that in sync. If the rule is more complex, I think it's perfectly acceptable to just punt and let the server handle it and return an error, right? But in an offline scenario where you're going to be disconnected for a period of time where you're not going to know if the data you're entering is invalid, I mean, think of the pain that that might cause a user if they were supposed to be entering in values in Fahrenheit instead of Celsius or whatever. What do they do at the time when they're trying to submit all these reports Do they have to go back and correct them right then and there? Like That, to me, seems like it's worthwhile for the user experience to keep them in sync manually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the harder topics to address. And again, this is, it's almost not as much of a technical challenge, although that can be the case. It's almost more of like a implementation. How much do I value this thing over this thing? And what is the user experience here? And do I want to lessen user experience and create a easier to implement permission system for validating this data? One thing that we did in a few cases is we attempted to use a hypermedia approach to the services we were talking to in the Rails end where 
the response would indicate to the client the next actions that it could take, almost build a very primitive state machine into the HTTP responses. And that way, the client ideally should never be confused as to what actions it can take next. It takes a lot of work to build this correctly, but the idea is you don't want to end up in a situation where a user feels trapped on their device. They can't solve the problem that they're in, which might be data that goes missing that is no longer available for them to see. This happened to us when we actually, they would go to the server, pull down new data. They would lose access to some information or some objects or entities that are no longer valid for them. But data that they've created based on that old version of their the data model is now lost because they don't have access to see it and it's actually trapped on their device. This is a really unfortunate situation to be in. And that did happen to us. So those are the kinds of considerations you have to make. So when you're talking about hypermedia, kind of walk us through exactly what's happening. You're talking about having your service actually be kind of the, they call it the engine of the application state. What does that mean for when we make a request, how is our response or our request different? Well, first of all, I am not an expert in this stuff. I've just dabbled in it a little bit. But the idea is that the response you receive as a client should indicate to you what things you can do with the response. So, for example, it's going to include URLs that are relevant to the data you receive. I get a list back of all these things, and each of the entries includes a URL for showing them, like the show URL, the simple get, and then perhaps like how to post back or how to create. And the idea is that you, it's a more robust way to build a client-server relationship or any application that kind of has several different clients talking to it. And this can apply to a web app as well. If you've ever dealt with, you know, multiple teams building different clients that interact with a central application or central services like a web service, these kinds of systems, when you build the support in from the beginning, makes it a lot easier to, it's almost like built-in versioning and knowledge, intrinsic knowledge about what valid things you can do with the application. That's very cool. So basically you're getting back a set of links to different URLs. So if you're trying to upload data and you no longer have access to that because you've moved on to a different project, one of the, your responses would be a different URL that might show you information saying you yeah. have this error conditions. Yeah, and I'm like I said, I'm not an expert in this topic. I would recommend that you read about hypermedia and this idea of, I believe it's called Hedios. And this is like using HTTP as the engine of application state and essentially treating it HTTP as a API and it's interesting. I wish I knew more about it. And I've used it in simple cases to, you know, store and retrieve information about certain entities that a user might have access to editing. But I haven't built an entire application around these principles. Okay. I've done some, some work kind of creating iOS or creating a web service and done it with iOS. And I found it very powerful, at least for the application we were doing. We were doing kind of a search engine. So we, instead of returning just like a blind filter, we would return oh, here's this genre of music, here's this genre of music, here's something you can search next. So if you searched for, had a text string, we would also return you know, a URL for your next search. So it's kind of going into the weeds of hypermedia, but it's definitely, definitely doable for iOS and actually a very good way to write your APIs. So how do you handle cases where, similar to the one I described, where a request maybe failed halfway throughout and the server may have received the data, but the client thinks it hasn't sent it yet or maybe encountered an error? 
generally, you, you mean you kind of becomes kind of your domain. So you have some workflow. You sit down what actually happens in this kind of error case. And so, I mean, if you think about an endpoint where you're going to add a new report, like a submit a brand new report versus updating an existing report, uh, those would be two different endpoints. So one's an insert and one's an update. And so if you continue to call the insert because you think it's brand new, you run into issues there, right? Right. Yeah, I guess I don't I don't fully understand. I think a lot of times it comes down to just fully fleshing out what happens in different error cases. And so if there is one, uh, maybe you just decide that those two endpoints are the same, like submitting a report is submitting a report, and it will either insert or update the existing report that's there. One of the techniques of generating IDs on the client side can help alleviate that because then you would know that, hey, this one already exists. I think the more restful way is you would probably, you got your resource, your report, and you, you know you create it by creating a post and you probably get back your ID, your URL for the new resource, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and then you can do a put up to that. So the server would give you your ID and then you would respond to a second request that actually uploads the data using a put that would go to that ID. Does that make sense? So I, it does. I think you could do that in one step where you have, you know, the server just does the check for you and says, okay, we've already inserted this one, so I'm just going to give you the location of the existing one. And from the client code, it doesn't uh, matter if it was a brand new insert or it was already inserted but you just didn't know about it so I'm just going to give you a thumbs up right it could be it's if you're inserting data how do you know it's repeat that's why I say you should generate an ID on the client side right did you do anything like that Peter I'm trying to remember how we handled that I know that we because we were creating core data objects we were using rest kit which helped most of these mapping problems and there is a way to when you receive responses back from your restful service to tell RESTKit how to map attributes you get back to values in core data so it doesn't recreate them essentially. So how does it know if it's a duplicate versus a new one or an existing one or a new one and a new entity or existing entity in core data? Well, RESTKit helps you do that with a, I think there's like a identifier property or something that you set. I don't think we generated client side IDs that we would use in Rails, although we did have you do have a core data ID and there might be some logical key that you can like a computed key almost to yeah. to know how to say okay I have this particular object for this parent record and on this day so that should be mapped to this and I think that's how we did it but I could be wrong I'm a fan of using natural keys where where they're like truly truly unique and always present but turns out those are kind of hard to come by like Somebody might say, like, oh, we'll just use social security number. Turns out that not everybody has one of those, you know? <laughs> and so. Uh, and they're typed wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I am ones. a fan of using like logical or natural keys, you know, when, when you can get away with it for sure, rather than relying on a, you know, a GUID or something. But, but yeah, I think, you know, using some sort of key like that at least it saves your app from inserting the same data twice. Yeah, if there's some client specific key, it kind of weirds me out too have a client create the key that the server uses as its unique key, but if the client had its own specific field, that you can make sure that you know, you're know you not having duplicate data, I think that's mm-hmm. reasonable. Yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't have to be the primary key on the server. It's just a field that is unique in the database, and the client generates it, so that way you can easily check. What about, uh, you know, I don't know if this was a, a case for you, Peter, but if you allowed this to exist on multiple devices at once, are they editing the same reports? Are they creating new reports? Is that report maybe tied specifically to that device? If you could edit them on different devices, then you run into the problem of, you know, conflicts arising when you finally get back to the office to sync up. So thankfully, 
once you submitted a report from your device and it was received by Rails, no more edits could be done on the device for that. That greatly simplified that particular workflow. So you really couldn't have a report in progress by more than one user. And that report, it's only local to that device. Once it's off the device, then it's no longer editable. That saved us a lot of work because that's a hard problem to solve. I would be really interested to know if someone has experience with incremental store out in the wild to see how that's holding up in a production environment. Because when I was evaluating it for usage on this project, it was like, oh, it doesn't do, you know, several of the major CRUD operations yet, which obviously was a deal breaker for me. So, yeah, I've only played with it, uh, you know, similar, just evaluating it. it. While it's technically really cool, there was a whole lot of magic that I didn't understand. And a lot of times that's the stuff you need to understand in order to fully extend it to accommodate your use cases. So I haven't ever used it in production. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to check back in on that one because it, it seemed like NS Incremental Store really was designed to solve a lot of these hard problems. And other frameworks like RESTkit with the core data support, they got you close to there, but it's still it's hard to piece together information that is, you know, possibly incomplete and possibly in conflict. And to keep that in sync across core data on, you know, multiple, possibly thousands of iOS devices, some of which are not online all the time, and, you know, your central database, that's a hard problem to solve. So I did see um, Jonathan Penn's NS Incremental Store presentation at CocoConf, which was fascinating and kind of terrifying at the same time. His use of it was mostly, I think, to demonstrate what you could do with it. Uh, and, and in his case, he was storing, you know, lots of P lists for the records. And so it's kind of like deconstructing in NS incremental store and learning a whole bunch of stuff about core data along the way that you probably never wanted to know. So it, it's definitely like a, you know, technically cool topic. It certainly requires the requisite amount of like investigation and, you know, prototyping to make sure that it does work for your use case. So if it's okay, I'm going to back up a second and talk a little bit about the keychain and its role in this. I kind of oversimplified it because it's not usually that hard to deal with. So keychain services is provided by Apple for usage in OS 10 and iOS apps. I've never used it in OS 10, although I understand almost all of us have used it. And there's like a master key that you know allows you to essentially access a bunch of stored passwords or other tokens and things like that. In iOS, each app has access to its keychain without the need to unlock anything. This is really just because iOS supports app sandboxing and it actually requires it. So you don't even need to enter a password for an app to access the keychain. There, I think Keychain Services is a C API. I've never actually interfaced with it itself. I've always used a wrapper and I've used the one that used to be called SFH Keychain Utils and now it's ST Keychain, which is part of ST Utils by LD Anderson on GitHub. And that provides like an easy way to store items in the keychain and you can associate them with like a username and a service name, I believe. So you could potentially store a couple different values for a user. And what I ended up doing was I created a category that essentially made up like I used this system of creating service names based on particular needs. So if I had if I needed tokens for more than one service, I would just create a different service name 
for those things and then name the category method appropriately. I also used these service names that this framework, this little library supported to um, essentially invalidate offline data. And I suppose you could lock some of this out at the server side level, but let's say a user has a token that they've received from the web service to that provides them access. Well, in my case, I ended up with a situation where users had a valid token. The only problem was it, it was not their token. And it was really hard to figure out how to make them stop submitting reports as the wrong user because I'd never built into the... That sounds iOS really app. bad. <laughs> yeah, it is really bad. And, and like, I can't put logic in my controller to say, oh, if you're this user, really set your username to this because, you know, it could be the valid person doing this. It really all came down to a bug in my, you know, finder create user by method and being to, you know, making assumptions there that were incorrect. So what I had to do was when I shipped the next version of the app, I would, I created a, like, another version on my service name so that I wouldn't try to pull the wrong token anymore out of the keychain. And actually, and I should have dug into the keychain more because I didn't find a lot of good support for deleting values. You can remove them. I think you can remove like for a username or for a service name, but I know there was some limitation with the library that I was using to do that. So I ended up like creating a version of the service name essentially so I could store these credentials, you know, and invalidate them accordingly. So if anyone has any thoughts on how keychain works and what best practices you should use, I'd love to hear them. I've used a lot of the, you know, similar auth token type API access, you know, where you store a username and password in the keychain and a temporary auth token. And, and the idea is that auth token is a potentially vulnerable piece of data where if somebody gets a hold of it, they can impersonate you forever. And so I like to make my auth tokens expire kind of like every once in a while your credit card company sends you a new credit card. So that if one ever gets out, you sort of limit the ability for that to to cause problems. In addition, you can at any point in time just cycle somebody's auth token and hopefully their experience doesn't suck when they try to submit some data. Uh, and the way I've handled that in the past is when they type in their username and password, I save that in the keychain also. And But in transit, obviously you're only sending the auth token for authenticated requests. And if I ever get back a auth token, you know, expired or invalid call from an API request. It'll be like, you know, 401 unauthorized or something. And I'll inspect that. And if it's the one that I'm looking for, then I will hang on to that request and instead make a login call for a new auth token using the saved login credentials and get back a new auth token. And once I have the new auth token, I'll save it and retry the original request. So the idea is that the user doesn't really know this is going on. And if that login request fails, then of course, at that point, something bad has happened, right? And that user probably doesn't have access anymore. So if I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to like continually try to re-log in. I'm just going to try that once. But if it does work and I get a new auth token, then I can uh, retry that original request and do that without the user having to push the button again, uh, which I think is a, a really good user experience and it provides you know a decent level of security and the ability to revoke auth tokens without adversely affecting the user experience. That's actually really similar to the workflow that we used as well, where we would have the username and password stored and a token and if their token expired or some other problem occurred and maybe validation on the server, then we could attempt to log in for them and acquire a new token and resubmit data. And hopefully all they see is just a little bit of, you know, spinner activity while all this is happening. So I have a question, and that is if you're offline for a long time, sometimes the app gets out of date. 
do you wind up having to maintain some backward compatibility both in your uh, your API and possibly your your database schema on the back end in order to accommodate that? Man, that's a bane of my existence. <laughs> I don't even think that really has to do with necessarily offline apps. I think people in general just if they're not on iOS 7 or they haven't updated their, what do you call it, the automatic updates feature, you know, we still have plenty of requests that happen to our old versions of the API. And as we want to make changes and improve things and, you know, right previous wrongs and things, you know, it, it becomes somewhat annoying because you have to still accept all of the bad data that you used to get, or not bad, but, you know, in a different format, and then handle it in the new way if it's in the new format. Yeah, the concept of data migrations was frequently discussed around here. And coming from Rails to core data, it's not quite as simple as it was in Rails to do migrations, although it is, it's possible Apple does provide support for it. It's just usually not as seamless in my experience. Yeah, I mean, if you add a new column or a new attribute to an entity or add a new entity, those things are usually fine. If you change the type of a column, then I think you're kind of hosed is not the right word but you're going <laughs> to have a bad point, time. Yeah, you can have a bad time. You have to create, you know, the new model, you know, in the standard way and then connect to the old model and copy the data over to the new model, then delete the old model and rename that one back to the original file name or or whatever. I'm I'm not sure exactly how those migrations go, but I think the official term is data gymnastics. <laughs> yeah. So, anything else that we should bring up before we get to the picks? I think we've just skimmed over five episodes worth of stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of offline a... authentication, sync, hypermedia, <laughs> core data migration. Yeah. Those are some of the harder problems, though, is trying to figure out the answers to these things. And oftentimes it involved discussions with the client, like how much do you value someone being able to just pull their updates for, you know, do the delta and get the three things that have changed versus sitting there for five minutes and loading in thousands of, we were like loading a lot of like wicket data, which is, you know, this well-known text um, representation of geometric shapes for plotting on maps. And we were like, how much do you value sitting there for five minutes waiting for the load versus being able to get the three things that have actually changed? Because it'd be a lot easier to pretend it all changed and it's downloaded all. So it required a lot of, you know, user experience thought and what's the value of implementing this feature versus the amount of work it takes and the complexity that it adds. Because this topic, when it was first discussed as a feature, we're like, oh, it's not that hard. We'll just, you know, we'll just keep everything in core data like it is. And then we'll just have to like check for, you know, this one thing that may have changed when there are when they get back online. Then it turn turns out there's all these edge cases you need to assume or need to consider when you're you know, building this. So it's a nuanced topic and that it touches a lot of other functional areas of the application. All right, well, let's get to the picks. Ben, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure, we've got four picks today. Two of them are games. Uh, I have been losing lots of time <laughs> to this game called Threes. It is an insanely addicting puzzle game. You've probably already heard of it, and maybe you've already played it, uh, where you combine tiles of given numbers together. So you can only combine a one and a two to make a three. And from that point on, a three has to merge with another three. A six has to merge with another six. And the idea is the whole board moves at a time so you can go up down left or right and and the tiles all move together and so you want to collapse things in groups if you can and and the scoring is sort of exponential as well so the higher numbers you get the like way higher the score goes so anyway it's really addicting and i kind of suck at this game but it's fun uh, so check out threes another game i've been playing recently is hearthstone it's a game by blizzard that uses the uh, world of warcraft lore 
and it's kind of a fun interactive card game. It's uh, right now it's free uh, during their open beta, and this is eventually going to be an iPad app, and it's just a lot of fun. I've been having a lot of fun with that. Another one related to the topic today is Stuart Gledow's talk at this was at CocoConf in Boston, I believe. Uh, no app is an island, and in it he talks a lot about the uh, you know REST style you know, hypermedia design of APIs for the purposes of consumption in a mobile device in order to, you know, make the mobile device a little bit more robust to changes and uh, not so tightly coupled to implementation details of the server. And uh, my last pick is a beer pick. I had one from Utah, actually. It's a Detour Double IPA by Crooked Line, I believe is the name. Anyway, it was uh, super potent and very tasty. So I will put a link to all those in the show notes. Awesome. James, what are your picks? All right, I'm going to go with two picks since we kind of skipped over the hypermedia stuff. I just want to point out a couple resources that really helped me when I was trying to figure this stuff out. One is a book called Restful Web Services, and it's pretty old. I think 2007, something like that. But it's really one of the, the earlier lengthy descriptions of how to write hypermedia, what REST is, you know, how to use resource base, how to do hypermedia. It's by Sam Ruby and Le- Leonard Richardson. But it's a really solid book. I've gone through it. It took me, I think, twice through before I actually started actually absorbing the content. But people are looking to kind of move beyond kind of simple web service design. It's a really great resource. And secondly, a more recent thing, if you've drank the Kool-Aid, the REST Kool-Aid, and you're like, how do I, how do I create a hypermedia API? There is a specification called HAL. I don't actually remember what it's called or what it stands for, HAL, Hypertext Application Language. It's very simple. Most of the languages you're probably thinking of using have a library for it, but it's actually fairly simple. You would be able to write your own kind of library, but just a basic way to put your, organize your responses into links, resources, and things like that. So I would, I'll recommend Hal. Those are my picks. Awesome. Um, I've got a couple of picks also relating to hypermedia APIs. Uh, Steve Klabnik, he's a fairly uh, well-known Rubyist, but he has a book out on uh, designing hypermedia APIs, and that's at designinghypermediaapis.com, and that'll be in the show notes. Also, we did an episode with him like two years ago, back when hypermedia and REST were kind of defining themselves as different from each other. Um, and so that one's called Rest on Right. It's on rubyrogues.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. We're also going to be interviewing Steve in a few weeks on the JavaScript Jabber show. And so you can get updated information on what hypermedia is and what it means there. And finally, I have almost finished this uh, basic economics book. It's by Thomas Sowell. And uh, it's, it's an awesome book. I've been listening to it on Audible and the narrator's pretty good. But if you want to get a real handle on how things work at large in the economy and what some of the incentives are for people to do certain things and why politicians on both sides of the aisle are wrong and in a lot of cases are really just doing what uh, will get them reelected as opposed to what will really help us out, then I highly, highly recommend this book. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Peter, what are your picks? Well, first of all, I also have been listening to basic economics over the last six months or so, and it really did kind of pull back the wool a little bit on um, the the idea of like unintended consequences of, you know, what sounds good in theory can have the opposite effect in practice. So really interesting stuff. My sole pick is Smart Things. Smart Things is a home automation platform, I guess. It is, I think it started from a Kickstarter campaign a couple of years ago and has since 
you know, launched as a, a platform that is, I found to be very developer friendly and you can buy a hub for 99 bucks and right out of the box, you buy the hub and any of your iOS and I assume Android devices, you can register those as proximity sensors for the hub. So, you know, you can buy one for your office and you can see you log into smart things, you install the app and you can see it right there, like who's in the office, who's not. And then you just start adding sensors. It's compatible with most of the Z-Wave and Zigbee sensors and anything that goes on Wi-Fi will work on it too. Not anything, but most things are. So you start adding motion sensors and switches and dimmers and, you know, garage door openers. And you can add cameras and motion sensors or the accelerometers. And you can start to automate your house or your office. And it's a really clean interface. It's really friendly for, you know, us people who want to write code and build things. One nice thing about it too is it's a little bit on the opposite end of the spectrum from, you know, buying an Arduino and wiring up the sensors yourself. Once you've done that once or twice and you've realized how much work it is to actually build something that's really complex, you'll really appreciate what something like Smart Things does for you. And they do have an IED, it's like a web-based IDE, and you can publish your, they call them smart apps that you can kind of plug and play these devices and wire them up to do all kinds of cool stuff. It also works with if this, then that. So I think it's really fun to jump into that stuff. I've started to do it with my house, and I would highly recommend smart things. Now, it's very cool tech. Those are, those are Minneapolis guys that did a lot of the tech stuff for that. So yep, it's very, very cool. Minneapolis makes everything cool, doesn't it? It does. It's so cold here, you got to stay inside and build stuff. You know, I was actually born in Minneapolis, so I guess I'd agree. There we go. There you go. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thanks for coming, Peter. Yeah, it was great to be here. Yeah, All thanks. Right. We'll uh, catch you all next week. <laughs>